The Tough Love and Second Chances podcast is written and produced by Tony Bennett on behalf of Edgar and reveals remarkable stories of those who refuse to be defined by their disability. The power of the human spirit shines through with examples of how hope, courage, and the opportunity to express oneself through the game of golf makes for a combination that can improve and even save lives. Chris and I first met when he made the trip from his home in Australia to the Algarve Open at the end of 2019. Immediately we hit it off and just a few weeks later we met again, this time just a few miles away from his home in Sydney. Our initial conversation started with the devastating fires in New South Wales, included some banter about cricket and then revealed an incredible life journey which tested Chris and his family to the full before he made a turn that has resulted in him being happier than he was before his life took the unexpected detour. In this story, you will meet a man who has thought deeply about what is important to him, who is grateful for the things that we so often take for granted, and who is a living testimony to the power of the human spirit. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Young. Chris, it's it's great to catch up with you, and uh, I was with you, I don't know, probably a month ago or so in uh, in Sydney. We went out for dinner together, and it was uh, it was good fun. And it's nice to actually catch up with you now and, and have a bit of chat with you about about your life, really, and about how you first got started. Um, you know, your upbringing, and 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 then how uh, how your impairment has changed your life a little bit. So. Um, I, I know that also in Sydney, you've, you've been having some real problems with the bushfires out there. So uh, how's that working out for you? Yeah, it hasn't been too bad for us in the sort of outer suburbs of Sydney. So it's um, more a case of hitting the regional areas and the surrounding areas of Sydney. So it certainly has had an effect on Sydney. As you saw when you were here, we were smothered with smoke. And I've seen some figures to say that, you know, consumer spending, et cetera, et cetera, down 20% or something. So it's definitely had a bit of a depression over the summer. And obviously everyone's horrified to see the stories coming out of people losing their houses or their lives. So it has been, a, it hasn't been the best summer from that point of view. You're not right in the middle of Sydney, are you? Just on the outskirts, is that correct? Yeah. So we're in the north, northwestern sort of in the hills area. So when, we, when I moved to Sydney, I thought I either have to live by the ocean or in the trees. And when I looked at the house prices for the ocean... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the trees it was. And is that more or less where you're from originally when you were growing up? No, I grew up in the outer, outer uh, eastern suburbs of Melbourne. So my dad was a, was um, from Ramsgate in Kent and uh, he finished, met my mum when he was studying at Oxford and they dad, did dad's PhD after they got married in Cardiff and then they were looking for some academics to come out and I think open the zoology department at ANU in Canberra. So they paid for dad and mum to come out and start a new life in Canberra. Um, and then I was, me and my older brother were actually born in Canberra, which um, is a lot of people don't know is the capital city of Australia. Yeah. And then soon after that, when I was only a couple of years old, dad got offered another job down at Melbourne University. Um, and he still works there now, even though he retired about 10 years ago. So. My dad's probably one of the only people I know who's had two jobs in his entire life. <laughs> That's not like that anymore, is it? I mean, a job for life is, uh, is yeah, something literally. of the past nowadays. Yeah, so, but, so growing up in Melbourne was, um, yeah, sports mad, sports mad kids we were. It was one of three brothers, one older, one younger. The older one was a fast bowler. The younger one could bat well. And we all played Aussie rules in the winter. So that was really how we spent our time growing up was chasing some sort of ball around the streets. That's a pretty good combination. You've got a batter and a bowler, so I'm sure that they, uh, they play quite a lot together. Yes. And tell, <laughs> yeah, tell me a little bit about your sport then. So you were saying that you used to, to play cricket and Aussie rules. So Aussie rules is a massive game out there. Isn't it? And certainly it seems like Aussie rules is really, it, it's camped out in Melbourne. That's, that's kind of where it was the hotbed. Is that correct? Yeah, well, what's now known as the AFL, the Australian Football League, was originally the Victorian Football League. So all 12 teams or whatever were originally just different suburbs of Melbourne, basically. So it wasn't sort of intra-Melbourne sport. Um, it was big in South Australia and, and Perth as in Western Australia as well. But now they've sort of nationalised it and 
tried to market all the states. And if you want to see a sport that's marketing itself well, that, you know, Aussie rules football is pretty good. They turn up at my kids' school every year in Sydney with two professional players and a bag of free balls and they run a, a free workshop. And so, yeah, it's, it's really a growing sport in Australia and, and the kids love it. But, um, yeah, so in Melbourne, it was it really was, I'd say cricket was certainly in the 80s. I'm not sure if it is now, but was the number one national sport that brought us all together each summer. And and we used to, you know, in the school holidays, you'd watch the test match and then go and play your own test match in the breaks well, you'll <laughs> out on the street that, with the neighbours. You'll notice that I'm trying to avoid talking about cricket. Aussie rules were pretty safe because English people don't <laughs> play Aussie rules. Uh, so I'm going to continue down this Aussie rules path for a second. Uh, but uh, it's a tough game, isn't it? Very tough. Yeah, it's a fast game. I th- I've always, I don't know, I was brought up with it, but people I've introduced it to can pick it up pretty quickly and enjoy watching it or playing it. Like, it's pretty obvious, fast-moving game. I've always thought basketball's similar. Like, just easy game to watch and you know what you're trying to do. But, yeah, you do take some hits, but it's not... I don't know, I've, I've never been a rugby player, for example, where you've got those stops and starts and scrums and stuff. In Aussie rules the ball's in play and he will just <laughs> chase after it. So you don't really think about the injuries till after they've happened. Yeah. And so you played quite a bit of that? Yeah. Yeah. We all played for the local club and then went off to high school and played for high school. So it was actually, I don't know if it'd be the same in the UK, but it was mandatory to play a, both a summer sport and a winter sport at high school right. in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. And then go on, I, I've got to mention cricket then. So go on, tell me about yeah. your cricket. <laughs> no, no, it's just that would be that's always probably been my favorite sport if I had one and and I just think well you know we actually grew up in a time I was born in 73 so you know I was getting into sport in the very late 70s and early 80s and that was a time when the West Indies were the dominant cricket force and I remember I was saying to my dad because I just took my son to his first test match this summer and my first test match with the first over I saw Joel Garner take three Australian wickets right. <laughs> just after taking our seat so you know that was a time where Australia really struggled so so um you know I think it was an interesting time in Australian sport and I think probably a lot of people of my age were inspired by it that Australia were really underdogs then and I think now as you say with the cricket but also other sports people expect Australia to do well but sort of the late 70s early 80s you know, it wouldn't mean much to someone from another country, but we won the America's Cup. We were the first country to win the yep. America's Cup, which is a famous sailing contest. And yeah. we started doing well at the swimming at the Olympics. And then as the West Indies started to slip back into cricket, Australia sort of took their mantle. So it was an exciting time, actually. And I was reminded Bob Hawker, Prime Minister from that time, died recently. And they were playing some nice clips. And the day after Australia won the America's Cup, pretty well said to the nation that any employer that disciplined staff member for turning up hungover or not turning up at all the day after the, uh, you know, the America's Cup win, basically they were a bloody idiot. <laughs> and I think the other thing that, that we loved in those days was watching Greg Norman try and win tournaments, you know, was to see him on the, on Channel 7 or whatever the Masters would be on and to see him out there up against the best guys in the world, the Sevies and the, Nick Feldos, et cetera, and that was also, you know, an exciting time. And we had a few other good players like Craig Parrini and Baker Finch around that time. But, yeah, oh, certainly yeah. Greg Norman fitted into that sort of uh, someone who was Australian and <clears throat> putting Australia on the map from a sports point of view. And did that inspire you to take up golf? Did you have a go? Yeah, yeah definitely. I was actually just through a friend that I started playing golf in about is in year seven or something. But certainly I've always love playing but also watching sport and I just love a good contest. I think I think what I've realised now I'm playing more golf and playing in more competitions is I, I did like the fact that I know he had a reputation for choking but you know Greg Norman was a great com- competitor and, and I think as much as anything I just love that side that he was always there in the mix and always hit a great shot when he needed to etc etc so yeah I really And I still enjoy that now, the competitive nature of golf, both against yourself or if you are in a competition against others. It seemed a little bit like he encompassed the kind of Aussie spirit of, you know, get in there, give it a go, uh, show show your best side and and, and do as well as you can do. And he he was kind of pretty aggressive as a player and didn't seem to take any prisoners. So he seemed to encompass that kind of Aussie attitude to sport. (laughs) And I think growing up in Melbourne, 
and probably anywhere in Australia is, is something that I noticed because I lived in, in England for 12 or 13 years. And, you know, the sports here are very working class or very open to everybody. Um, and, you know, to play at our local golf club as kids, I can't remember how much it was, but it was totally affordable. They'd hire you the sticks very cheaply. There was nothing exclusive about it. You know, you could just turn up and they encouraged primary school age kids to turn up who'd never played golf before in groups and holidays and hack around the course. But that was very sort of, you know, indicative of the attitude to sport. There was good facilities and they were cheap or easy to access for everybody. My brother wanted to take me to the AFL grand final. I think we got tickets for, you know, one or $2, which whatever that's worth now, yeah. just because you could, whereas, you know, you can't imagine doing that for a lot of end of season football finals around the world. Exactly. And so what brought you to the UK? Um, a 10-week holiday. <laughs> no, I am. Um, I've spent a fair bit of time in the UK. My parents are both British and my dad being academic. We had a couple of good sabbaticals back there, um, one in Oxford and the other one in East London. Um, and so when I was studying, I decided I want to go back to England for a summer, for a, sorry, for Christmas. Um, and so I went to stay with who was known as my dragon aunt Sue in East London, which was an area that fascinated me, totally different to Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is totally yeah, different. So once, yeah, once I was there, I, um, I got offered a place at a music college and actually ended up studying music in London and then trying to work as a musician after that. Okay, I didn't realise you were into music. <laughs> yeah, I try and keep it quiet, like my music. But no, it was good to <laughs> do it. <laughs> Yeah, so, and then, um, and then funnily enough, I, um, at the same time, needed a regular gig. So I got a, a part-time job at McDonald's, at the local McDonald's that had just opened. And then a few years down the line, after I got sick of teaching kids guitar, I um, got offered a, a place on their management program and ended up working for McDonald's in the UK for 12 years or whatever. And I always said, I liken that a little bit to working for the army, joining the army. <laughs> it was a very regimented place to work in was good if you worked hard you got rewarded and, and I enjoyed that and that sort of got me interested in business which I had no interest in up to that point. During that time did you continue to play any sport did you continue to play any golf? Yes uh, both so McDonald's was good I've always thought you have to have the right job to play golf and we used to have this Amer a few Americanisms in the company but one was uh, summertime which meant in, in the summer months, you would work 8.30 to 5.30, but finish at 1 o'clock on a Friday. So finishing 1 o'clock on a Friday was ideal. For, we just used to find anyone else from the office who has played golf at some point in their life and tee up a, a Friday afternoon uh, tee spot either out in Essex near where I lived or in North London where the McDonald's office used to be. So, yeah, there was a, a good time and I enjoyed um, the social aspects and just getting out. But um, I also played for a West Indian cricket club in East London, which I loved. Because <laughs> uh, having grown up watching West Indians, it was funny to play with them. My lasting memory is, um, is that any time there was a spot of rain, we got caught off the ground and the rum and the dominoes came out and we really got back on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so then what took you back then to, uh, to Australia? Yeah, so um, I married an English girl and, and we decided that if we were having kids that we felt Australia was a good place to bring them up. I was obviously biased, but she'd been out there to visit a few times with me. So it was really once my eldest daughter was born, uh, who's 15 now, we decided to, to go back. Um, and yeah, so that was really, the, I guess, the fundamental thing. I think I had a feeling that I always would, but I did love living in England as well. So, uh, but um, yeah, so we were glad to come back. How old was you then? Was I? Yeah. That's a good question. Probably 34. Yeah, that'd be about right. No. Okay, so yeah, you're, right now, you're right now into your career as well. So did you, yeah. did you change career when you moved back to Aussie? Uh, not sort of. So I was in, um, so in McDonald's, I started in operations management, but I really fell in love with their training and learning and development programs. So, um, and I actually spent my last three years at McDonald's in the learning and development um, department. Um, so when I got back here, I did, uh, the first job I enjoyed that I picked up here was actually as a training manager for a management consultancy firm. So it was 
continuing in a similar vein and um, as she was lucky to get that job. So um, just working with business owners and franchisees, just helping them educate them and understand their business better and really just using all the information I'd learned at McDonald's, which was great. <laughs> and so that then became your, your career and I know that you're still a little bit involved in that area. Yes, yeah, no, so I now own a business of my own, um, which sort of falls into the when I got sick story, but um, yeah, I've, I've spent the last, off and on with a little break there to get my toenails done, spent the last 12 or 13 years working with um, business owners in Australia um, to understand their businesses. So we sort of look at their results and their numbers and their non-financial results and then sort of uh, speak to them and get groups of them together to understand what makes their business work well and what doesn't. So it's Actually, I was in a very fortunate position to, you know, see some people with these incredible lifestyles because they chose them, where they could run a successful business but not let it take over their entire life. Um, and then they had time for hobbies, whether it be golf or whatever else people were into. And then I also saw some couples who were just stuck working in businesses 60 hours a week each, no time for the kids, no time for other family, no time for recreation, you know. So I've, you know, very lucky to see that and then be able to open my own business and realise what it was I wanted to get out of it from an early stage. Now you mentioned that you started your your business as a result of or at the same time as you got yep. sick. So can you tell me <laughs> a little bit about that? How, how not not so much about the business side, but first and yeah. foremost, how you got sick and and how that uh, how that panned out. Well, yeah, I was probably closer to fit in that latter model that I just talked about. I was working way too hard, um, very focused on, on work. I was enjoying it, um, but, you know, working all the hours I could. We were doing some work with the USA at the time, so I was up very early um, doing conference calls at sort of 5 a.m. and stuff. I had three kids. My youngest, who's my son, was six months old at the time. So I think it's fair to say I was a bit run down. Um, and I just came down with flu symptoms. I remember it distinctly in August 2012, just waking up um, with, have you ever had your teeth chattering, you know, when you have a flu? Uh -huh. And I, I remember waking up and, and moving to the far side of the bed away from the window because I just figured I was cold. And then the next morning when I woke up, I just felt lousy, just as you would with a flu. And um, luckily I was working from home that day anyway. And so I just got on with things. And on the Thursday, I felt lousy. So I called in sick and went to the doctors and my doctor said, oh, yeah, you've got a flu. It's a pretty bad one. You'll be off for a few days. <laughs> and um, so I rang my boss and said I might be off for a few days and, and went back home. And then we would, went out to a, a dinner on the Saturday night and someone served me a fantastic looking steak and I couldn't touch it. And it was at that point we knew something was wrong. Um, and I couldn't sleep that Saturday night. I was just too uncomfortable and started developing pain in my left leg just below my knee um, so I just said to my wife I said look I'm going to go to the hospital I need to get some painkillers for this I can't you know when you're just so uncomfortable you yeah. can't do anything and um and she said I'll oh, stay in bed I'll call an ambulance so I said don't be silly it's nothing and don't wake up the neighbors at this time of night I'll just drive so I drove myself to hospital and I actually drove to a smallish hospital and some people afterwards questioned why I went to a small hospital that probably maybe couldn't you know didn't have the best facilities and I said because I knew I could park right next to the emergency <laughs> department so I could <laughs> get in and out quickly but um yeah so I remember that night clearly and I remember pacing up and down in the emergency room so what you call it in England an emergency room yeah 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 yeah, yeah. In, uh, and um yeah and I was very uncomfortable I'd sit down and then I'd get uncomfortable so I'd walk up and down and then I'd get uncomfortable so I'd sit down and after waiting for about three hours they finally saw me um, which was the early hours of, of Saturday, uh, Sunday morning. Um, yeah, and by Monday morning, I had to go into emergency surgery for what's known as a fasciotomy. So I developed something called compartment syndrome in my left leg, um, which is a build-up of pressure. Um, and if they didn't release the pressure, it could have been fatal. So I had to have that done straight away. And um, I remember I was very confused and I was a bit sedated at the time, but I remember been rolled into the surgery and they said now you do realize you might not survive this surgery or you might not wake up for a very long time and I think the last things I said before they put me under was well don't tell my wife because <laughs> I didn't want her to be worried wow. um, and then yeah so then I did fall into a coma from that surgery 
And the actual illness I had, if I remember it correctly, was a severe streptococcal aseptosemia um, with multi-organ dysfunction and necrotizing fasciitis. There you go. It's a catchy, <laughs> catchy That's, name. Yeah. And, but basically, as I, I'm still confused about, and there's a few things going on at the same time, but um, as, as I understood it, I was in shock, so medical shock. So my blood was being attacked by streptococcal bacteria or poison, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that was breaking my blood down into, um, into plasma. Um, so my blood was, was breaking down and the fluid was escaping out into my body. And that was creating the compartment syndrome, all this extra fluid trying to escape. Um, but so I was in a coma, I think, um, and pretty much all my organs failed over the next 48 hours, except for um, my brain and my heart. So I was on life support, you might say. Um, I didn't know anything about it. I was in a coma. But, you know, my parents were called to come up from Melbourne and, and say goodbye to me. And they were pretty much told that if, you know, um, that it wouldn't last another 24, 48 hours. So, yeah. So that was a really hard time for my family to go through. And, and my eldest daughter was oh, seven or eight at the time and she was couldn't sleep because she was crying all night. Luckily, in a way, the other two are still quite young. So I don't think it, they've had any sort of follow on from it as, as the older one did. But yeah, so for the next two or three days, it was all pretty doom and gloom and my brothers came, et cetera, et cetera. I, I remember one particular story which meant a lot to me was we'd had some neighbours um, and she was an anaesthetist, quite a senior one, and they'd moved to Adelaide. And she was in her a weekly briefing meeting on a, I think it was the Tuesday morning and she got a phone call from my wife um, and and all panicky, just asking what she should do and what had happened. And my friend who is the anaesthetist rang the doctor at the hospital where I was and um, and then and was heard some pretty grim news and then just excused herself from her work and got on a plane and flew to Sydney. And when I asked her later, I said, that was the nicest thing. Why did you do that? And she said, oh, when I heard what your numbers were, I knew you were dying. And I didn't want Bow to have to answer the phone when they rang to say that you died. So that was the reason I came. I said, oh, so it wasn't for me at all. Thanks. <laughs> but, you know, so that was the sort of stuff that was going on. And I was just off in fairyland in a coma. So I was glad to be in, in hindsight. But it was very hard on my parents too. Um, but, yeah, so um, then, you know, after three or so days, I hadn't died. And, and I don't understand all the technicalities of it, but my numbers starting getting better and then after about two weeks um i was well enough to wake up so yeah that was the i guess the illness side of it and just to carry on the medical side of it i guess um i mean i think it was anyone who's been in that position waking up from something like that is just an experience you'll never forget because um i i knew i had a recollection that i'd been going to surgery so when i woke up i figured i was just waking up from the surgery which might have been you know, four hours or two hours right. or something yeah. like that. And so, and I'm sure, I'm told this is common, but it took people a long time to convince me that uh, it was in fact two weeks later and all this stuff had happened. And I remember my wife said, I was saying, oh, you got to get me out of here. I've got to go to Brisbane for work on Thursday. And she was like, that was two weeks ago. I'm like, yeah, yeah, rubbish, rubbish. So she actually had to ring my boss. And my boss had to say, that was two weeks ago. We covered it. You're good to stay in hospital for a while. And um, yeah, so in the end, after being told I'd have a few days off work, I never really went back to that job full time. And I was in the hospital. I got home just before Christmas. So first part of four months, four and a half months recovering from that. Um, well, where do you start after, where do you start from there? I mean, obviously, a number of different questions are running through my mind here as we speak. Yeah. So yeah, the first one is, is, have you had the opportunity and have you taken the time to speak to your parents about what they were going through at that time? Yeah, that's a good, a good question. Um, the, the, my mum's side of it sort of has a sad answer because my mum was in her third bout of breast cancer at the time. And I'm actually convinced that she just sort of held on to make sure I was okay. And then she died. Funnily enough, not funny, but, the day I lost my leg was 13th of September, um, 2012. My first amputation and my mum died on the 13th of, December, of September, 2013. So that's not my favorite day, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but 
actually, the positive side of that was she was in hospital having breast cancer treatment when I was in rehab around the end of 2012. And actually, for the first time in our lives, we spoke every day, if not once, twice. And we actually had some really nice conversations. And so, and, and, and I was jealous because they served red wine in her hospital and I couldn't understand why that wasn't possible in Sydney. But um, we, so we did speak about it then. And, and it was actually a really nice last year because suddenly I didn't care about work at all. <laughs> and even though I was uncomfortable, I was very open to spending quite a bit of time talking to people. And my mum was definitely one of those, yeah. Um, so that was sad when she passed away. And then, and so, but yeah, close to dad now and, and speak to him much more than I used to before I was sick, that's for sure. A few times a week and go and visit him regularly. Um, and yeah, I think it was hard, a hard time for him in particular because I think he knew where mum was headed. And then for me to suddenly drop like that, I think that was really hard on him. And, and my brothers tell me just how you know upset he was, um, especially around that time. And you mentioned something really interesting. So when you, when you came out of the coma, how long did it take you to get some kind of sense of, of what had happened to you? Yeah, was, I don't know if you're the same. I'm always like, oh, no, it wasn't as bad as people are saying. People always exaggerate. Um, so I think it, it was the time in my life when the reality was far worse than what you could imagine. Um, and again, my friend who was a doctor was saying, you know, whenever I've seen someone have injections of adrenaline in a surgery, then we always lose them. She said, you had two or three injections of adrenaline. Like, so statements like that started making me you know, really think about yeah. what had gone on and what was going on. And, um, and, and something, you know, doctors are fantastic and they probably saved my life, but actually the nurses were just incredible because they'd all come in and they were so genuinely happy to see me. I'd never seen these people in my entire life. And they're like, oh, we're so excited to hear you're awake. And was like, they knew my whole story because they'd spent the last two weeks with every member of my family, you know, going through these ups and downs of he's on his way out. Oh, no, he might survive. And so that was quite incredible um, to, to, for total people to me who were total strangers, but sort of knew, oh, Luke is such a cute baby and all this sort of It was very random. Um, so that was a big part of it, just hearing all these different conversations from different people. Um, and to, I think to continue on from that, I'll, I'll talk a little bit in a minute about the really positive upsides of that and why I then changed my life in a lot of ways. But the downside was then I, with the elation of knowing that I'd survived and probably beaten death, I suppose would be the right language. Then we started talking about amputated bits of my body. And so that was sort of a bit like being on a roller coaster, but not knowing that it's actually going to be safe. <laughs> so yeah. One doctor came in at that stage and said, because I had got gangrene damage on my hands and my feet and I had the necrotizing fasciitis, which uh, kills off your, your skin as I understand it. But so the left foot was a no brainer um, straight away. It had to go straight away because it was an endangerment to me, but the right foot was badly damaged and so were my hands. And as someone who was a keen musician and, and worked on a computer basically for a living, a, a doctor said that they wanted to amputate all my fingers and both my feet. Um, at that stage. So that was, you know, I guess having survived it and then, well, what's going on here? That was a really scary and upsetting couple of weeks, really, while we just came through the worst of that and, and resisted the temptation to go crazy with the amputations. We, our rule was sort of, well, if it's not endangering my life, we're not cutting it off until we see what happens. How, how did you, you, you compute all of that in your head? Because you, you just said, I mean, without cutting, you know, without talking about cutting all bits yeah. and bits off your body, I mean, yeah. you've got to make some pretty strategic decisions there, and you're you're relying very heavily on the advice of the medical profession. Um, and the confusing how, how thing that is, process for you? yeah. Now, well, the other side of that is, as fellow, a lot of my fellow amputee golfers say, is the medical professions professionals disagree with each other as well. So that's right. hard. Yeah, exactly. But um. All I can say to you, I don't know, but all I can say is I was in a different world there for a few months and nothing else really mattered. And we just had an incredible amount of support from family and friends. Um, and so, you know, with that support um, and, and even my boss, you know, 
um, looking after us and just saying, just take your time and work this out. So it, it, I guess it frees you up from the worries of everyday life. I, I always say, you know, I don't know, you've had a kid, you know, the day your kid gets born, the only thing you care about is your kid and your wife. <laughs> like it's nothing else in the world matters, does it? And it's a bit like that. Everything else, all the small stuff goes out the window for a little while while you just focus on these big decisions. And, and is that something you've, you've taken forward now into the rest of your life? Yeah, as much as I can. I think the great thing and the bad thing about being human is that we can get used to anything. So the good thing is you can learn to play golf with prosthetic legs or you can learn to deal with discomfort and still be happy. Um, but I think the downside of that is we take things for granted. And I think what I actually do miss about that time was just how elated I was to be alive. And, you know, just looking at the tree outside of the window, you could burst into tears with happiness of being able to see a tree. Like it was, you know, really heightened emotional time. And I actually miss that sometimes when you sort of get back to life and getting the bills paid on time and employee problems or whatever it might be. So I kind of, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing time. It definitely helped me make some decisions. So, um, you know, I was, I think, to go back a few days, um, sort of when I realised what had happened and how lucky I was really and how amazing this whole thing had been, I, it, I think pe different people talk about this experience in different ways, but what really changed me was that I got a chance to review what would have been my life, you know what I mean? I was thinking, well, I was 38 years old and if I had not have survived, if I had have died, which was highly likely, you know, what would I have been happy with? What wasn't I happy with? And, some of the stuff that we all worry about, and I can't think of a good example now, but some of it's pretty stupid. And then when you sit there knowing that you just about died, you think, well, I don't care about that. That's not important. Um, and then some things um, you think, well, I would have liked to get that done. And then there were some things you were proud that you did, some work achievements maybe, your children, whatever it might be. And there were some things that you'd regretted that you hadn't got done. So it was actually a really nice sort of midlife crisis reset, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and that was what led to me starting a business was one is I wasn't sure if I'd be able to work again anyway, but two was that it was something that I wanted to do and I'd been pussyfooting around with it. And I just thought, well, who knows how long it's going to be till the next episode. So let's get on with it because you just don't know how many days you've got left. So if you do want to do something, you need to do it. And um, I know that sounds cliche, but it's actually true, you know? Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine what it must, uh, what it must feel like. And so you've now had to go through this. These are now elective amputations, correct? So you've made the decision. Uh, the second, yeah. So, this, so, so and that's another good topic for discussion for anyone going through a similar situation is we were against, and I say my wife and I, and really backed up with my parents and a couple of other friends who are highly involved. We were definitely against the amputations. Um, and you just assume that cutting bits off your body must be a bad thing and, and you don't want it to happen. And, you know, and I use my hands every day now, so I'm thrilled that we didn't. But in the end, the second foot didn't survive. Um, and I waited best part of two years to amputate that. And it was a very uncomfortable two years. I had 13 or 14 surgeries on that foot. Um, and some of them were horrific, like half a foot being debrided and waking up with no toes and no heel and your bones sticking out. And, but some, <laughs> you still felt there was some hope. And then due to a few conversations changed my mind. The doctor said, look, it's healed as much as it's going to heal. So you can take antibiotics and be on crutches for the rest of your life to keep that foot. Or you can amputate it and you know how that goes because you've already got one prosthetic leg. And then I ran into an older guy at the hospital um, and he'd waited seven years to cut off a foot that wasn't working properly. And, and he said he was the best decision he ever made. So, so I remember the day I sat there and I had a laugh with my foot. That sounds really weird, but being a sports fan, yeah. I thought back to the best goals that had ever kicked and, and a few other funny things that my foot had been involved with. And I said goodbye to it and cut it off. And that was sad. But when I woke up, I've never felt more light or more correct about a decision. And so you know, I think it takes time for you to come to grips with the fact that it's, for want of a better word, screwed or yep. beyond use or hopeless. But when you do accept that, then you can move on. 
And I can tell you now, without shadow of a doubt, I have a better quality of life because of that amputation. So even though it, at, at first it seems counterintuitive to want to remove bits of your body, I would have no qualms in recommending that to someone else in the same position. Um, and I'm glad I didn't wait seven years to find that out. Tell me about the, the rehabilitation process. So now, because you've obviously got one prosthetic before yeah. uh, the selective amputation, then yeah. you've now got two prosthetics afterwards. Yeah. And yeah. how quickly did you get to, to grips with those two prosthetics? How quickly did you get legs that, that functioned in a, in a way that matched your lifestyle? Because I, I understand <laughs> that many times with yeah. prosthetics, um, the first prosthetic kind of gets you back on your feet, so to speak. But yeah. then after that, then there's a period of time where it's now a question of getting a prosthetic that matches the lifestyle that, that you're trying to have. Yeah, so the good questions. I think for me, the hardest time in rehab was actually back in 2012. And because I'd spent a month in intensive care without moving at all. So I used to have people to move you. Every two hours, two big burly guys would come and move your position in your bed and put a pillow where you wanted it. <laughs> so wow. I lost 30 kilograms of muscle in those four weeks. And I remember um, rolling, uh, with the help of two physios, rolling onto my front after losing this and I couldn't breathe. And I've heard other people describe it too. And then the first time you stand up after that, with aid obviously, and all the fluid just rushes down through your body and it's an excruciating experience. Um, and you know, on top of that, my hands and my arms didn't work so I couldn't feed myself or go to the toilet or shower myself for quite a long time, probably four to six months. So I think that rehab for me was, was the hardest. Um, and actually by the time we got the prosthetic, that was sort of towards the end of that. So it was almost a different challenge. But so I think anyone who's been in intensive care for for a long time would agree that that kind of rehab is unbelievable and and you've just got to keep moving as much as you can and, and the physios uh, uh, life you know they save your life but they hurt you at the same time <laughs> so, so. Tough, um, i guess it's cold isn't it <laughs> yeah, it is and and, and actually uh, if i had a low point it was when i was in rehab because i think when you're in a hospital it's all about getting you better and you know, pampering you to, to a certain extent. Like when I was in intensive care, I had two full-time nurses just assigned to me. So even though I was uncomfortable, it's nice to have that company and, and you know, you didn't even have to wipe your own bum, you know, <laughs> everything was done for you. But when you get to rehab, it's all about, ah, that's it. The love's over and you're going to get on with the rest of your life and you need to learn to walk again and you need to get, you know, prepare your own meals and wash yourself. And so that was actually a hard time because, and I, and I can understand why, maybe some older people get stuck in hospital for the rest of their lives is because it's very hard to fend for yourself again after you've been, you know, pampered for a few months. But, um, yeah, so I found that hard. Um, and the only thing I can say about the prosthetic was putting the prosthetic on for the first time. It was like putting on, imagine a size 100 gum boot or Wellington boot, I think you'd call it. Yep. <laughs> and you're just like, this isn't going to work. How does it like, you know, because for the last, around the time I got my first prosthetic was the time of Oscar Pistorius just um, being in the London Olympics. Oh, yeah, yeah. And everyone's like, oh, they're so wonderful. Aren't you going to be lucky? The technology is so good. And I just wanted to say, if it's so good, we cut off your own bloody leg. And, <laughs> and when you put it on for the first time, I'm sure the other amputees agree, you think, no, you can't, let alone you can't run in this. There's no way you can walk in this thing. But but I do remember taking my first row of steps and um, and just crying with joy, you know. And there was a, a lady there. She was a she was a recreational therapist, and she wanted to see me get back into some sort of sport because she we had talked about it. And and she just happened to be there, and I just hugged this woman who I hardly knew and cried for a good five minutes. It was happiness, you know what I mean? And I just thought it was the nicest experience. And I thought so as much as people who go through stuff like this suffer. We also have these incredible experiences that you probably wouldn't have had otherwise. So, you know, I don't know when the last time you cried to a total stranger for five minutes is, I don't like to ask. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's surprising how things are. I mean, I lost my mother um, mm. six months, uh, yeah, just over six months ago now. And um, 
I've got to say, that was the first time that I've cried for a long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're crying in front of somebody that you don't know. And you go, wow, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is something else. And it is a, it's a very different experience. It really does. And it, it challenges you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I can understand what you're saying. It's, uh, we've heard it so many times from the, the people that we've interviewed that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they've had experiences that they would never have, they, they would never have had both mm. obviously bad but also mm. surprisingly in many cases good because uh, it's mm. opened up different avenues and different uh, emotions in, inside of them and opportunities to speak to people and relate to people that perhaps they would never have experienced so it's uh, it's interesting to hear your comments and, and certainly i can uh, i can empathize with with uh, certainly crying with somebody who you who you didn't know yeah uh, i think the other, the other amazing thing that I discovered through this experience, and I think the rest of my family would agree, is people are good. Like, if you watch your news every night, you're not quite sure if people are good, but people are amazing. Like, you know, my wife didn't have to cook a single meal for over a year. Just these meals just kept appearing on her doorstep every single night. And, um, yeah, there was a million stories I could tell you. One day, a total stranger, we still don't know who it was, left a check for $10,000 in our letterbox just to help <laughs> it's like just the amount of goodness that's out there um both from you know from all members of society so that was really encouraging just to know that you know you know that people are there for each other more than you'd expect i think your comment there is absolutely true and i i, I believe that totally is that there is a way there's, there's way more good people out there you, you, you only ever hear about the, the the very very tiny minority of people um, that are bad, and that seems to be that the news it wants to populate mm. that 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 kind, yeah, of, that, that kind of attitude. And I certainly, for one, stopped watching the news, stopped reading the news, stopped uh, listening to the news. I, I was gonna—I'll say not a hundred percent, but certainly ninety-five percent. Every now and then, I'll see it on the TV because it just happens to be mm. on. Uh, but I stopped reading the news probably ten years ago, and uh, maybe it was one of the best decisions I ever made. <laughs> um, well, at least you don't. Yeah. Tell no, me then. So you, you mentioned yeah. about your recreational therapist there, and she wanted to get yeah, you back yeah. into a sport. So is yeah. that kind of where golf came back into your life? It did, yes. So and um, so that is definitely where it came back in. So there was a few options. Rugby, wheelchair rugby is very popular in Sydney, so they were very aggressive in their their marketing. But I was like, mate, I'm from Melbourne. I don't want to play rugby. <laughs> so so that was out. <laughs> And I had been playing over 35 soccer before I got sick, but, you know, unless I was going to be a goalkeeper or a goalpost, that was sort of out for a while. And, um, yeah, so she, so I said, I used to play golf, and she was like, oh, well, there's amputee golf. It's very popular. And there's a group here in New South Wales, and, and she gave me the details. Um, and then it took me a while. Um, I wasn't mobile for quite a while after that. But when I was, I rang up and... Um, spoke to a guy called Steve Smith who runs our New South Wales amputee days and he invited me along to I think the first thing I did was the New South Wales Open obviously that gave me some motivation to go and get some lessons etc and and see if I could still hit the ball but um and I still remember my first day Steve was just fantastic like he's a he's got one um leg amputated and um and he made sure I was in his cart on the first day and he'd never met me before and he just made me feel so welcome and encouraged me and I just, you know, I was off. <laughs> so, yeah, people like that just do fantastic things and I've seen him do it with other people who have arrived new and, you know, people like me, you come into a disability at a later stage in life and it's a, it's a strange world, you're not sure what to expect and people like that just really help you feel welcome and feel at home and we all had a good laugh at each other's injuries and he told me his and I told him mine. So that was definitely a turning point for me. And I think I think it's hard, but I think anyone who has any sort of mobility issue, the, the real temptation, the evil of it is to stop moving. And, and I think any medical professional will tell you, once you stop moving, you're in trouble. So I think for me, the, from back then and right up to literally today, that golf helps keep me moving because, um, you know, 
anyone who has amputations will tell you that you, you have very few perfect days. There's always something going on with, the, with your legs and it's never 100% comfortable and the easiest thing would be to lie on the sofa and, you know, watch the cricket or whatever. But um, knowing that I've got a golf tournament coming up or knowing I'm going to meet some friends to play golf or even just going out on my own to play a beautiful golf course for a few hours, it just gives you that motivation to get up and go through the discomfort barrier and get out there and, and do something. I think the camaraderie at uh, these events is quite incredible. I'm, I'm relatively new to yeah. golf for the disabled and I've been around it probably now for about eight years. And um, I've, I've seen golf at every level. I've seen it from yeah. the basic junior, you know, just picking up a golf club for the very first time all the way through to major champions and, and major championships. And I can certainly say that any time that you attend an event where you've got golfers with disability, the atmosphere is totally unique. It's totally different mm. in a good way. It's totally yes. unique. It's totally different. It's like something that you've never experienced before. And the more I've tried to analyze that, and the more I've tried to dis distill that down into just a few words, it's, it is about the camaraderie. It is about the competitive nature. It is about the banter or the sledging, as perhaps you might say in, in Australia. Uh, between mm. the, the <laughs> participants it's just yes. it's a different atmosphere and certainly uh, my advice to anybody is to go along to watch one of the events because they will be a different person having seen one of those events yeah, okay. and of course if if that person is disabled and they're, they're a golf and they're taking part in the event it will certainly be life-changing i don't think there's any mm. doubt about that mm. You'll have come across um, Mike Rolls, who we've had on this yep. uh, this podcast, and Mike also is a, a double leg amputee uh, from yep. Melbourne. And so, do, do you spend much time with Mike? Have you have you spent much time with him playing? Yes, <clears throat> we well to start with. Even though he's in Melbourne, I'm in Sydney. We play a lot of the same events. So he'll come up for the New South Wales Open, and I'll go down there for the Victorian Open. And um, yes, yeah, so and we're in touch otherwise as well, but. Um, I think he really did give me some some good pieces of quite practical advice as well. Like so, we whenever we catch up, we talk about different styles of prosthetics and what's working for him, and also what he uses for golf and any adjustments he makes for golf. But you know, I remember one one good piece of advice, and and I've had lots of good advice. But uh, he saw me swinging away and warming, you know, hitting like three or four practice swings before I hit my actual shot, and he said. Oh, it's interesting, I used to do that, he said, and, he, and um, he said, and I realized that by the time I'd hit three shots, I was getting uncomfortable in my legs and a bit tired. And he said, so I've stopped hitting practice swings and, and I find I'm getting a lot less tired and staying focused to the end of the round. So I tried that and I could feel the difference immediately. And sometimes, you know, you naturally think, oh, I could keep swinging this thing, but he was, you know, someone a bit like reading Jack Nicholson's book who said, don't get too obsessed with it, don't get, you know, you know, you've got to look after you, in this case, your legs and, and don't overdo it and just get up there, visualise the shot and have a bash. And that's that's really helped me, actually. But there's been a million things he's told me. So also good for me to see from where I was coming from that there's this guy out there playing golf off a very low single figure handicap with the same disability as me. So I don't have any excuses, really. You got on a plane and came over to the uh, Portugal Algarve Open, um, yeah. which I saw you, I think it was, I'm not mistaken, it was November of, of last year. Uh, how yeah. was that experience for you? That, that might have been, uh, was that one of the first times you played in the, an event outside of Australia for, for golfers with disabilities? Yes, that, that was, um, uh, the last time I played an international golf tournament was at a McDonald's conference in France. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> and I played much worse. Um, no, you played much worse then. You played much yeah, worse yeah, then. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I had a slice back then, and I don't know if anyone's played the Disneyland Paris golf course, but it's all built. At, there's four holes that go around a central sort of block of bushland, and they all are all are a slice's nightmare. So I donated a good seven or eight balls to that block of land. I think. So now that was a bit of a a dream for me. I've always liked travelling. Um, and I always, even though I am proud of being Australian and love Australia to bits, I've also enjoyed traveling as a younger person and obviously living in Europe for a good few years. So I was definitely keen um, to, to get out and meet more people. 
um, and and play golf in faraway places. So that was um, really exciting, and I'm really glad I did it. Um, played in a lot of amputee tournaments in Australia. This one in Portugal was my um, only my second just uh, you know all abilities tournament and so that was also really good for me to play with the para golfers for the first time and to meet people um who have got totally different issues going on but again as you're saying good to we could have a laugh about what was going on with our bodies or, or whatever was wrong with us and and just enjoy golf as as a shared thing so it was a fantastic experience and i've already said to many of the australian guys here if they haven't they should, and and I'd always been had been impressed by um, people like Miroslav from the Czech Republic, or um, uh, I've forgotten his name, the guy from the US who came here and won the Australian Open. You know, oh, I was Chad. impressed that they, yeah, Chad. Sorry, he's a lovely guy. He looks like Ned Kelly. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> should have seen him when he had his big bigot. Uh, but I thought I thought it was great how they came out here and that we had this connection with them. You know. I remember Miroslav being very upset. He's below knee on one side and very upset that, that under the rules out here, he wasn't allowed to walk the course. He had to drive around in a buggy. Um, but, you know, so I was, I was pleased. And, and when I got there, I wasn't disappointed. I, it was exciting to be part of a big tournament like that. You know, what did you have, 70 to 80 people there? Yeah, I think so. I think it's normally a pretty full field, so probably 72 yeah. players or, or something of that order. Yeah. yeah. And and also to sort of to meet people who I'd sort of seen on the EDA EDGA news coverage and stuff, you know. So people like George, who ended up having a few beers with, and you know, it was great to meet these people who have um, inspired me, I guess, without realizing that that made it very normal that I'd be able to play golf. And I think sometimes we forget that it's maybe not seen as normal by some of our able-bodied friends and colleagues that we play golf. But, you know, you just forget that it was never normal. It's just part of everyday life now. So if I ask this question quite a lot, which is mm. if you were going to give some advice to somebody who found themselves in a similar situation to you found yourself, you wake up, you've been in a coma, you don't realise you've been in a coma, you don't realise it's two weeks later. Um, and you find that you've been as critically ill as you were, you find that there's parts of your body that are no longer functioning and that they may well have to come. What, what kind of advice would you give to somebody in that situation? Yeah, um, firstly, I'd tell them that it, it's going to work out okay and it's going to take time because I think at that particular point, especially if they are have just amputated something or are talking about amputations, I think... The hardest thing is when you put on that leg for the first time or you have your first fit in and you just cannot understand on any level how you're ever going to be able to move around in this gigantic thing attached <laughs> to your stump. So I think in the short term, I think, you know, I'd, I'd give them, I'd tell them that there's days that I walk around with two prosthetic legs and I don't even notice them. You know what I mean? You can yeah. and you can have a totally normal life and I'm actually happier now than I was before I lost my legs. So... I'd, I'd sort of try and give them that positive news. Um, I think you need that encouragement if I went back and met myself. And, and I do do that from time to time at North Shore Hospital where I was in Sydney. Um, one of the social workers invites me back to meet, meet some people who are, you know, it's a, it's a real shock to go through that. So I think the first thing is comfort and that in the long term, everything's going to work out that you can be happy in your new physical form. So don't worry about it. There's, you know, I don't know if there's millions, but it feels like there's millions of us around the world all doing fine. Um, so don't panic and, and, you know, trust that it'll be okay. I think that's an important thing when you've just gone through that, that experience, because there is a lot of fear. And that fear um, must be, that fear must affect people, obviously, in very different ways. And um, I'm yeah. sure that some of the people that you see, that, that will probably... Uh, turn into some mental health issues as well. Mm. And it's very funny because I was not aware of amputees at all. Never had a, a relative or a friend with an amputation before it happened to me. So I can understand other people's reactions. But, you know, you must hear it when you're hanging around with us. People will meet you for the first time and ask what happened. Oh, I am sorry. And I'm like, oh, why did you do it? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's so terrible. And I, I think we imagine, I'm sure I would still do it. 
But I think we imagine that if we ended up with a spinal injury or losing our limbs, that that would be it, life over. So I think it's, and I think it's great. And I think golf's a big part of it. But in all areas of life, we're seeing more and more good examples of people with a disability who are achieving great things or just being happy. And hopefully we can change that stigma that it's not the end of your life or the worst thing that will ever happen to you. It's a, it's a change and it has its downsides, but it really does not stop you living a full and, and happy life unless you decide to let it do that. Well, I can't add anything to what you've just said, Dan. It's a perfect send off. And uh, Chris, it's been absolutely fantastic chatting to you. I, I, I really enjoyed our, our conversation that we had when we went out to dinner together. I thought it was uh, really enjoyed that. It was fantastic. Yeah. We're going to get a bit of golfing, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, I know we didn't play on that particular day, but we will go and play. I'm looking forward to that as well. And yeah. um, just thank you very much for your time. I know it's pretty late there for you right now. Oh, that's all. And um, <laughs> I know that uh, your good lady probably has either got some, I'm not sure whether it's supper or maybe a, an evening drink ready for you. <laughs> Uh, certainly, mine, my wife has not got that for me at this stage, as we <laughs> talked about earlier this morning. Well, uh, I hope so you're not recording that statement, Tony. <laughs> I, I am recording it, but I'm going to cut it out of the. I'm going to cut it out of the broadcast, but I will play that, that little bit. Can I just tell you one story? We had the loveliest experience the other day. Just to finish with, is um, when I was in England, uh, in in Portugal, I somehow got. I'll blame it on them. I got um, talked into the English boys at the bar by you know drinking far too much and became good friends with, with George and the team. And obviously spent some time with Kip, who ended up winning the Portugal tournament and is off a handicap of plus one. And so Kip mentioned he was out here. So we caught up for a round of golf on the 2nd of January in the smoky Sydney. And it was, and it was the only first sober time I'd really spent with him. And it was so great to hear his story and someone totally different growing up with cerebral palsy and just the amazing treatment he's had to be able to walk so normally, et cetera. But, so that was all fantastic. And it's also fantastic to play golf with someone who's off plus one. But the, you know, in Sydney, um, obviously golf's dying a little bit as it is around the world in popularity with the kids, except with the Asian market. And we have a lot of Oriental Asians here and they love golf. And we were playing behind a group of four really friendly Asian guys and Kip birdied two holes. And the second one was almost a hole in one on a par three. And they were clapping and cheering for Kip. They didn't know he was disabled, and I don't think they still do. But after that, we were back at the clubhouse, and these four guys came up to Kip and <laughs> took him away from me for a good 10 minutes. And the next thing I see, Kip's signing this guy's shirt, signing another guy's hat. And they were so convinced that Kip's going to be the next world number one. They just wanted to get the signatures in earlier. And, you know, we headed off down the tenth, and there were all these shouts of "Good luck, Kip! See you on TV, Kip!" <laughs> amazing, amazing. <laughs> and Kip said to me, "He said, you know, the funny thing is, he said, I just realised I don't have a signature. <laughs> Got to go and work <laughs> on his autograph. <laughs> he's just he's it. just written his name across some guy's hundred dollar golf shirt." <laughs> and uh, but and but the other side of that was exactly what you were saying. Kip played his first disabled. Um, tournament at Portugal where I met him and he and he's um, competing in uh, you would know better than me but senior sort of high level English amateur tournament yeah, absolutely. And he said he said the difference in the in the in the atmosphere could not be any different he said everyone feels like they're out to get each other and very cagey and out to beat each other at these very serious tournaments and he said he just couldn't believe how everyone just wanted to you know, especially, I, I don't know the gentleman's name, he played with the last round. He said it was the best round he's ever had because the other guy was such a good sport. They were sort of cheering each other on, even though they were trying to beat each other. And he just said the, the atmosphere in that event. And so I asked him, you know, given that he's a great golfer and he can probably do what he wants. I said, will you continue to be involved in, in, the, just in the All Abilities tournaments? And he said he wouldn't miss it for the world just because of that. So I thought that was great. Uh, that is great. And I mean, I witnessed that last round. I watched uh, the last yes. nine holes of that. And it was, it was played in a very sporting fashion. And, and the nice thing is, you're absolutely right. And what he said is correct, is that both of the guys were really doing their very best to win. But mm. it, they were doing it in a way that was so sporting that was it was it was heartening for the soul to watch because both of mm. them literally were clapping each other as they made their birdies and as they made, you know, a, a fantastic par from just off the green and 
you know, up and downs here and there. And it, it was just really good to watch. And I think the other thing that's really impressive about what you've just said there is that you played your event there, the first event that you played um, in Europe, and certainly the first event in Edgar, the first event mm. that Kipper played in Edgar. And you two guys then got together in Australia, you know, whatever it is, a couple of months later, and, you know, you formed a friendship, which I think is fantastic. That's, uh, that's it really what, what it's all about. Hey, listen, thanks, thanks very much for your time, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. Nice Chris. to catch up, by the way. Take it easy, buddy, and uh, we'll be in contact, I'm sure. This was an Edgar Player Story, supported by Ping, helping golfers to play their best. For more information about Edgar, please visit edgargolf.com. Stay tuned for the next Tough Love and Second Chances podcast. Ping. Play your best.